You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, I'm Stephanie Hafley, a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm here today to talk with Dr. Erwin Decker and Dr. Valeria Morea about their new book, Realizing the Values of Art, Making Space for Cultural Civil Society, published through Springer. Erwin Decker is a senior fellow with the Hayek Program at Mercatus and previously taught in the Department of Cultural Economics at the Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Valeria Moria is a lecturer in the Erasmus School of History, Culture, and Communication at the Erasmus University, Rotterdam, and a James Buchanan Fellow with the Mercatus Center. Thank you for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thank you, Stephanie. First off, your book, Realizing the Values of Art, is excellent. Thank you so much for writing it and contributing it to the space. Uh, It argues that art and the value of art is a deeply social process with a multitude of values being discovered, created, and contested. You develop a novel way of looking at this process through the four stages of orientation, imagination, realization, and evaluation. You all then go through several case studies that cover a wide range of artistic endeavors, such as the wrappings of Jean-Claude and Christo, the rapper and singer Fonte, activist artists in Venice, and so much more. As a lover of many forms of art, from high art to pretty weird stuff, uh, I really appreciate this broad view that you guys take. By embracing this heterogeneousness of art and the varied values that are realized, you argue in the book that policy should be about cultivating art and not picking particular types of art or values or expressions that should exist. I think this is a radically different and important approach. In the book, you talk about the conventional ways that economists and sociologists and art experts have studied art, particularly ideas of public funding and public cultivation of the arts, the instrumentalization of art and artists, the idea of the lone artistic genius, and the distinctions between high and low art. Your approach and that of the Rotterdam School is quite different. Can you tell me more about this more social, pragmatic view of looking at the arts? Well, thank you, Stephanie, for your little review of our book so far. (laughs) Um, We really enjoyed writing it. And uh, so I think it's a pleasure to hear that you loved it. So uh, in Rotterdam, what we try to do is to, well, we teach students cultural economics And of course, they get some uh, fundamentals in economic theory and sociology. And as such, they understand the differences between highbrow and lowbrow arts and all about subsidies and cultural policy in, in the more traditional ways. But what we also try to do in Rotterdam, which has been a house to somehow a different school of thought in this regard, is to uh, try to really face the question, why is art important? And uh, in our lives, in the economy, traditionally cultural policy has has seen this, uh, well, has had an approach to, to the arts that is either to promote its excellence in the more romantic idea of uh, lone genius, for example, that you might mention, or uh, more recently in uh, instrumentalizing the arts because they are seen also together with cultural industries, they are seen as uh, a good way to develop cities or to revitalize economies. And, and this, is, this is a different way of looking at the arts. What, well, at least our ways of looking at the arts with this book is part of a different tradition, which was probably initiated in Rotterdam, uh, where we both used, uh, I work here now and Irvin used to uh, work, where we try to continue this tradition of asking what art, what, why do we really like the arts in society rather than what are the arts good for? In this way, we have a more pragmatic approach to it, and we use a lot of Jewish, for example, and neo-pragmatism to, to look at how the arts are practiced 
and try to see in it an, maybe an indication of what are the values that are in the are dear to, you know, what's dear to people. Absolutely. That's great. I think that idea of, you know, not what it's good for or art for art's sake, but what is happening, right? Part of that is also an internal, external approach. I don't think any of the others are wrong. Art will generate economic innovation of one kind or another. It will have all sorts of social effects and it also has an aesthetic dimension, right? There's no point in denying that. But the danger is always that once you try to say, well, one of these three is the way forward or is the way by by which we evaluate it, is that you miss the the insider perspective. So what are both artists themselves as well as audience trying to realize and what sort of combination of these are they trying to realize? And a lot of cultural policy as well as sort of social scientific approaches take a very um, sort of external view saying that it's either good for 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 economic reasons or social reasons or aesthetic reasons. And uh, we think that, you know, starting from what people are trying to achieve is, is a much better starting point. Excellent. And allows for all of those to exist rather than picking your preferred one over the other. How did this project come about for you guys to work on it together? We can trace this uh, to Rotterdam again, because of course, this is where uh, Irvin and I met. And uh, we, uh, we certainly share Professor Klammer, Adio Klammer, uh, as a PhD supervisor. And um, our, we were, uh, it was during the pandemic and uh, there was some sort of a conference around Ario's retirement. And it was a weird moment in which all these people that I just, you know, I talked to you about this Rotterdam school in uh, cultural economics in a way. And we were together and uh, it was a weird moment where Irvin was leaving. I was already in Venice and Ario was retiring. I mean... Uh, there is also many more people uh, in the in the circle and the econ and culture seminar uh, that Irvin uh, used to yeah manage in a way, and uh, and at that point I think it clicked and then and we had the the urge to to start new ways. I mean we knew that we had to keep on working together somehow, but in a different way, also with the pandemic, of course. And so I think that Irvin suggested to <laughs> to um, to embark in this new venture. <laughs> Uh, a key theme in your book is that imagination and creation occur in deeply social process, practices and processes. Can you talk about the circles, like the one you just mentioned, uh, the discussions, et cetera, that enable art to happen and how that grounds your approach to the valuation of art? Yeah. So in, in, in our approach, uh, sort of social processes are sort of key, and this is essentially to run counter to a dominant approach, which we see particularly in economics, where you think that if something is being traded, then that must be where the action is. And we say, well, the action is not around the transaction, but the action is when um, the art gets discussed or uh, when it is contested or when it is uh, shared or even when it when it is being created. Because to a lot of artists, the process of creation itself, including all the feedback and the sort of sharing and uh, the drawing inspiration from others is, is very much part of the meaningful process. And you can also flip that around is that the moment you have bought something or seen something for the first time or something is in some sense only the start of the process of consumption, right? Because that is uh, after that, you, you might talk about it with friends, you might start comp compare and contrast it to other experiences that you have. In the digital space, it might live on as a meme and be adapted. It might be inspiration for other people to start doing something similar. Uh, and so by focusing on this entire process of, of, of value creation, we try to take away a little bit from, from a focus on the artistic good itself and say, well, it's the social practices around it that are really uh, meaningful. And they start from the moment of inception and they, well, perhaps they never end, but of course, right. We have to sort of say, okay, there, there is a process and we, we want to map this process in one way or another, but at some point it, it, it ends with consumers taking it in whatever direction they want to take it, which is, and it's just sort of an important thing, right? We, we, we're not saying that the, the values sort of, I, I guess, has a sort of romantic, a romantic connotation, but this is not to say that all these people share the same thing. Audiences might adapt and remix and reuse the artistic good in a manner that wasn't at all intended uh, by the artist, right? And so they might take it in a really different direction or 
use it uh, with irony so that it sort of subverts the original meaning and so on. Excellent. And you talk about how, you know, particularly on the creation side, there's all of these circles, you know, kind of social networks that people are engaging in and particularly artists. Could you talk a little bit about these circles and how you think that they interact and, and, and kind of push these ideas forward? Yeah, so I worked on on circles before in uh, in, in my book on on Vienna, in uh, in which I uh, sort of said, well, the uh, the scholarly activities in Vienna didn't primarily happen at the university, but they happened in these uh, private and uh, semi-public uh, circles of intellectuals. And reading all the literature for for this project, it just seemed that this was a recurring theme. So whether you think of Paris in the late 19th century or uh, New York in the decades after the war or uh, whatever other hot, historical hotspot of creativity, think of Berlin or Renaissance, uh, Venice and Florence, there were always artists together. So that, that I guess, is the, is the first observation, right? Artistic activity tends to be clustered. Then there's a kind of social scientific activity that, uh, or question that is, why does that work or what are the sort of institutional mechanisms that uh, make that happen. And I think there we, we have some interesting things to say. I think other people have, have theorized, tried to theorize it as well, but we essentially say that in order for such a circle to work, it needs a kind of critical, va- a critical value of contributions. Now we don't mathematically specify what the critical number of contributions is, but uh, there are actually <laughs> some, some mathematical models out there, people who try to do that. But the basic idea is that to have a vibrant scene, you need a critical number of contributions. And because those contributions are happening, other people want to be part of that circle. And so part of the value of being part of that circle is that you get sort of first mover access, but also intimate engagement with those ideas, right? And this, I think, is something you also see in scholarly seminars, but you certainly see in the art world is that being part of these prestigious circles or even being accepted into amateur circles is a, is a very key part of how the social world operates. And in order to be let in, you have to be able to contribute, right? Because essentially that is the way they, they guard against free riding, if, if you want to put it in economic terms. But we, we argue that that is the way that they, um, that they sustain themselves. Of course, not all of them sustain themselves all of the time, right? A lot of these circles, they, they started, start with a lot of energy, initial energy, and then the contributions are not really forthcoming or there's not enough individuals joining and they, and then they die away. But I think if you would, and Valeria did some of this, try to map them, right? They're very, very numerous, especially in urban settings. Yeah, I think something that's really interesting is there's a lot of characteristics and connections that you can pull after looking at a bunch of these circles, right? They tend to happen in urban settings. There's, you know, examples of kind of long running places like New York being a space or Paris. But the thing that's really interesting to me is how it changes over time. And also, you can, you know, we'll we'll get more into the policy discussion later, but but this idea that you could force a circle to happen is an interesting one as well, right? Like this uh, is it emergent or could you say, hey, I'm gonna make the Silicon Valley of the East, like this we talked about for um, this tech sector, or you know, I'm gonna replicate the beatnik scene in New York, right? Like that this seems a little difficult to imagine, but also, you know, kind of how you think about like the spontaneousness and emergence of these, of these circles. Valeria, you've studied these quite a bit and and mapped them out. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, I, during my postdoc in Venice, I actually uh, tried to map out uh, the grassroots cultural organizations, at least this is how I have defined uh, them back then, uh, in Venice. And Venice um, is an interesting case because it is notoriously a heritage city, an artistic city, uh, touristic destination, but it is a bit overlooked what happens in the underbrush uh, of this uh, creative city, right? And so uh, I discovered that, I mean, the more you zoom in, the more you find in this underground scene uh, of uh, artistic collectives, more or less connected with universities. And they, what uh, I think that the most interesting finding in this regard is how they all 
tend to have a very precise idea of how they would like to live this city, which is so creative, but at the same time, so hard to live in. And so uh, they, uh, they, they have circles in which they operate and they all say how important it is to be together, to cut some transaction costs of, you know, being a cultural entrepreneur to some extent, uh, but also because it is, uh, it is important for knowledge sharing and transfer, you know, and innovation, which reminds to urban circles in Vienna, for instance. But at the same time, they get together because they want to try to get to that critical mass in which they can actually implement a better, more just and more sustainable way of dwelling in the city. And so we see that they have some aesthetic imagination uh, that goes together with some more social imagination. They have precise ideas in their way. They are artists uh, to regarding how they would like the cultural policy of the city, the cultural institutions of the city to be. This is quite interesting. And, and uh, for us, because it led us to illustrate even more strongly, probably the social practices that we um, are interested in around the arts. You know, one thing I kept thinking about when I was reading the book and, and as you guys are talking today is it reminds me of one of my favorite papers from James Buchanan, and it's the most Austrian of his papers rather than the most public choice. Um, but order is defined in the process of its emergence. And in it, he really talks about how choices are decided in the process and that the process is how we realize what we want to do and have and how to do it, right? That idea that there's something happening before within the choice and then afterwards, but that's really where all the good stuff is happening, which was pretty counter when he wrote it to sort of a lot of the ways that economists thought about transactions and, and, and choices and how we could measure them and predict them. Similarly, you say in the book, you know, we are what we do. And you talk about this notion of an art as a way of living. Could you talk a little bit more about that and kind of how you see this process kind of pulling through into sort of like the, the real actual doing and living of, of, of people? So, so this is a bit of an internal discussion that has been going on in this seminar that we referred to before, in which uh, the Professor Klammer that I referred to before has a sort of strong conception of values. And it's, it's, it's almost a sort of conservative platonic notion of values, which are the same everywhere all across time. And he thinks that if you just ask people what they really care about, that you go on and figure that out. As if we have some, I think in my telling, it would be as if you have some authentic self within. And if you just have a good therapist, and then the therapist will be able to get that sort of authentic self out. And I think Valeria and I, but I shouldn't speak too much for her, but at least I am, I'm, I don't believe in that, that notion at all. Uh, I think actually, if we look both at, at the good sociology, but also if we uh, look at some modern developments in economics that try to conceptualize identity, we see that identities are actually being formed. And so that is how it relates, I think, to your Buchanan quote, right? Is that we don't, beforehand know who we are, which, by the way, is the traditional economic view. I think if you think of individuals as having a set of well-defined preferences, then they already know what, what they are or what they want to be, however you precisely conceptualize it. We instead say, no, that, that, that's the wrong way. I think also culturally, it's the wrong way of thinking because we actually, in a rich environment, we see a lot of examples. We have a lot of examples we can follow and a lot of inspiration we can draw on. Uh, that is essentially how we form ourselves. And so there we make the connection to the circles and say, well, you know, in, in, in life, or you try out a lot of different circles, both of friends and of activities, and you sort of figure out why they matter to the people who are already pursuing that practice, what sort of values they're trying to realize. And rather than thinking that you can sort of radically change the direction of those circles or change your own direction, you instead essentially decide who you're going to be with. And in that, right, the right word is not even self-discovery, but it's a kind of self-realization because, right, we, we, we rejected a sort of notion of an authentic self and in, instead suggest, you know, you're, you're joining these other people and thereby making yourself. And so that's the sort of you are what you do uh, sort of component of it. And again, here, I think even at the level of the individual, it's important to recognize that these are rival, that these can be rival or contested 
values, right? So they might entail very different social roles or very uh, values that are in some sense incompatible so that when you're with one group of, of friends and, and then with a group of family or so, uh, the values that you're trying to realize might be in some sort of grandiose sense in, in, in competition or incompatible with each other. But that's precisely because there is no right underlying self, but there is different practices in which we engage. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting, right? Because we know that, you know, their preferences can be sticky and we can kind of get in, ingrained in what we do. But there's a lot of examples of, uh, you know, or I guess a lot of hope in the idea that you can change and evolve over time, right? That there's not just figuring out who you have always been, but who you could be, right? Yeah, fair. Uh, but I, I think this is the one part where I would be a little bit critical of some of Buchanan's writings, which I think tend toward the sort of I can make myself in my own image sort of notion. And I think this more socialized or even sociological perspective suggests that we might not have necessarily the cognitive or imaginative capacity to do, but we can figure out what sort of practices we want to belong to and what sort of traditions we, we would like to contribute to. And so in that sense, right, what we are able to do is in some sense constrained by constraint as well as enabled by our social environment. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, in another piece, he talks about how we want freedom to have the space to become who we want to become. But it's that idea that you would know who it is, where this one, this kind of order is defined in the process of its emergence is a lot more of that kind of social. You won't even know what that is until you're in it. Valeri, do you have a different point or uh, uh, to, to, to add the complication of this kind of discussion? So Irvin um, rightfully spoke also for me, saying that, yeah, I also do not feel very comfortable in having uh, some a priori uh, values to which, you know, society sh sh should aspire to or is supposed to aspire to. Uh, and uh, I think just just to make maybe a, a brief connection to some case studies that we that we have in the book besides the Venice case, which tends always to be the most uh, discussed, but that's because it's my primary data, perhaps. But uh, Irvin brings about Fonte's hip hop uh, career, and here there we also show uh, how values can change in different contexts of life in different times of life and that this, there, are, there is adaptations also in terms of economic, well, creative artistic creation and as such also economic behavior. And um, in another and maybe relevant case would be the one of the queer museum that uh, a colleague of ours, Carolina della Chiesa, has uh, and which we draw from in Brazil, uh, where a community craved uh, a queer uh, art museum. And so they had to basically what they did is was to imagine a new to rethink a, 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 an established institution, that one, the one of the museum, to adapt it to emerging identities in a way. So I think that might be um, a cool case to look at. Absolutely. And I think that idea of, you know, the context of the time and place you're in, but the people you're with and how that changes your you know, sort of the options you have for living and how you think about it, I think is really important. Um, you know, right now we're seeing a lot of contestation and discussions that were never possible before now being able to be on the table about, you know, and you talk about this in the book, issues of colonialism and empire and history. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a really good example of, you know, you could imagine that this would always be something we could talk about, but the way we can talk about it and explore it, I think is dramatically different now than 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, I, I think some of those examples, we, we, we talk quite extensively about the uh, tearing down of public statues, uh, both colonial and Confederate uh, statues uh, around the world uh, and in the, in the United States and here in Virginia in particular, but right. We're, we're conceptualizing it at least as um, people uh, becoming vocal in, in 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 the public space about their identities also being represented, right? And so, in this sense, it's I think this is sort of an ongoing process of emancipation or uh, increasing heterogeneity, where more and more groups are trying to uh, right and also be represented in the public space. And yeah, Valeria, I've worked extensively on 
on public art and its meaning. And uh, I'm sure we will talk a little bit about a bit more about that when we when we get to discuss policy. But I think a, a key aspect of artistic practices is you you can analyze them as social, but they're, they always have this sort of moral, political, well, not always, but a lot of them have this sort of moral, political, or ideal, idealistic side to them. So they're trying to also imagine, as really I was saying about Venice, uh, right, trying to imagine a new or a different city. And in that sense, they will be rival with the conceptions of others, right? And so one key issue is how we can uh, let that rivalry uh, go on uh, peacefully and prevent uh, one group from being able to impose its particular vision of national identity or group identity upon the others. Yeah, I think that the bit about sort of conflict and impermanence of the cultural of cultural civil society and how we engage with each other and kind of civil society more broadly is really important uh, and something that's come through the book. I feel like so we as humans tend to crave this notion of stability, right? This idea of authenticity and that itself for, you know, this idea that we could have kind of a set of values that are important. Um, but that isn't really what living is about, particularly how you explain it through some of the uh, case studies in your book. How do you think art can help us be better at contestation and these discussions, knowing that there is also that kind of internal desire for that seeking for stability that we have as well? Of course, stability is, is more comfortable, right? Knowing is more comfortable than not knowing. But we know that, at least we do know that, uh, it is uncertainty that we're, society tries to cope with all the time. And in contrast to that, of course, we crave stability. And I think, I mean, we can safely uh, use heritage and culture as very good examples for that. Uh, museums and public art, public action in, cult in the cultural uh, sphere, I mean, those are specific examples, clear examples of uh, national identity building, for instance, which uh, is an instance of yeah, an institution that craves stability, right? It is much harder not to have a, a well-defined boundaries in boundary in terms of culture and as such national identity, even if we do not delve into the power relations of that. But at the same time, as you just mentioned, we are living in times in which it is uh, contestation is uh, much more visible, luckily. And, and we see that uh, colonial statues are contested and toppled down and there is a big heated public discourse uh, around it precisely because new IF we're looking for new ways of living our own identities, but also at the same time we see new identities emerge. And uh, the problem is how do we go about the fact that now we can also have people that do not like a specific question statue, uh, should we topple it down? Should we not? Uh, so the problem is, well, if we keep on craving for stability, then we might have to pick a side and decide whether we want, well, which community we want to prevail in this, whose values prevail over the others. So this, this is the challenge. And, uh, and I think, yeah, this, this is really is a question of uh, public policy and in, in our case, cultural policy. And uh, maybe the example of the queer museum is an interesting one again, because it shows how institutions could be uh, designed in a way that are inclusive in the sense of coexistence. And then probably coexistence in this sense is the key word of our final uh, uh, part of the book, because uh, really that is the objective that we Maybe next works uh, will try to define better. So, so I think a, a key key element in these discussions is that I think we work from what is perhaps sometimes known as epistemic liberalism, right? So you want liberalism not because you know what the right way of living is, but you want liberalism because you don't know what the right way of living is. Uh, and so it's a kind of attitude of, of ignorance and humility about uh, knowing what's underlyingly good, right? And I think this even links back to knowing who 
who we ourselves are, um, which we discussed a little bit before, but this certainly holds true for uh, knowing what society is like, right? And this is this is one of the reasons why we draw quite a bit on, Dew- on uh, John Dewey, the, the American pragmatist philosopher, who I think recognizes this aspect of, of democracy very deeply. I think there's other parts of his work in his, in his economics where he's, I think, sort of ignoring some of these very deep issues of, of pluralism. But here, uh, at the level of democracy, he really sees it, right? He really sees it. So how can we have this maximal divergence and uh, people living peacefully together for reasons of, of not knowing? And the not knowing sometimes has, I think, a double meaning. So part of the coexistence that Felia is talking about is simply that we do not even know what other people are realizing in their, their other artistic circles. And there's a danger by turning things into public art or into being for everyone that all of a sudden we all have to agree on that same thing, which is not, right? That's, our, that's one of the sort of basic observations, I think, that our book suggests. This is not at all how, how this goes. We hope to have drawn from enough subcultures that everybody is surprised at, that, at the existence of one of the subcultures and be like, oh, I didn't know that they were they were doing that, which is, which is fine, right? We don't have to know or make fully public what every sort of social or cultural group is trying to do. They can do that amongst themselves. That is, of course, not to say that right. there's no sort of uh, overall public if we're trying to tell the history of, of a country, which we also do, do uh, through art, then certainly uh, some of those issues of national identity will also come up. But a lot of those identities are social and they can coexist uh, relatively easily that way. So then it's not even about discovering what the best way of living for everyone is, but just figuring out what the best way of, of, of coexisting of, co- of coexisting is and what the best way of, of living for uh, smaller groups is in a society, right? And that is what the heterogeneity is, is not something to be overcome, but it's probably going to be a permanent feature of, uh, of the, such societies. Yeah. And I think about, you know, sort of this idea of getting comfortable in the uncomfortableness of uncertainty, right? How do we embrace that? But there, but, but in some sense, right, there are, I, I think some of these circles can be sort of understood as safe spaces. And this is, this is one other aspect that we, we talked, perhaps we even ha- haven't, haven't even said enough about sort of high art and low art, right? But cultural festivals, local community festivals, uh, celebrations of, of arti- artisanal, um, traditions in an area. These are all very important identity forming issues. We're not trying to say in the book that everything has to be avant-garde or experimental, right? They could be tradition based. They could be very much community and folk types of art, uh, which are very important in giving people a sense of place. And it would be f- much too strong to claim that by thinking everything in national terms, we're sort of pulling people out of those safe spaces. But I do think that those, if we, if we, if we realize the importance of those spaces, we wouldn't have to nationalize all, all of these discussions and have those regional uh, identities or even, even more local identities, right? Have, have them be taken seriously. And one major flaw I, in, in my perspective on cultural policy is that it, it is always so focused on the high arts or that which is really worthy of support. One of the initial platforms of a Dutch populist leader was, why don't you support Carnival? Uh, which is, uh, which is right, a, a very major celebration for the Catholic South of the country, which culturally and politically has always been somewhat underrepresented. And it's like, well, all this money goes to these, you know, modern high art museums uh, in the major cities. Why are you guys not supporting us? And I think he was he was absolutely right in seeing that. But then we can have a discussion whether everybody should have a small piece of the pie or whether the pie should not be there in, in, in the sense that distribution itself might be the might be the issue. But it I think it's it was a very important realization and a sort of wake up call. Like we cannot say we're supporting the arts and then sort of picking sides on whose art counts as the real art. Um, but instead, we should recognize that all these people are um, realizing who they are through cultural practices that sometimes look very fancy and highbrow and that sometimes are very mundane and, and, and local and, and folksy, which is, which is absolutely right, because precisely by that, we recognize that cultural practices are important for everyone and are not 
sort of uh, only there for some elite or something like that. Yeah, and I think that that idea of participating in these circles and having these spaces where you get to engage in art and create your own and think about others and critique it, it reminds me a lot of how the Ostroms talk about the art of association, uh, which gets at this idea of democracy as well, right? We're, we're practicing how to deal with others and conflict and our own values in those ways. And I think, I think in that way, this sort of embracing of this social, but also political circles of art might give us the practice to do, to be better at kind of thinking about these kind of heterogeneous values and conflicts as we go around, right? Like, I, you know, if we're thinking about kind of colonial statues and those discussions, right? You have people who want to stop the discussion. They don't want to have it at all, right? And then you want to, there's people who are trying to have the discussion and figure out what the answers are. And they might think there's one answer, but you know, maybe as you guys talked about in the book, there's many answers. And so I wonder if this idea of fully embracing how we engage with living one another through art and other things gives us the practice to be better at it. And you just have to get to that practice maybe to or acknowledge the practice to be able to open up to those, those conversations. Um, I don't know if that's how you guys are thinking about. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All in all, I think that uh, in this regard, we can look at Ostrom to get some sort of a method to go about what uh, in other contexts have been called shared goods. uh, Right. And so, um, Acknowledging that uh, in some cases art can be rival uh, because a statue may be called public art, but it's in fact the behavior of everyone has an impact on the on the possibilities of you know enjoyment consumption of the same uh, statue. Then it's a good step towards uh, having a decent uh, yeah living around the statue itself and having uh, you know realizing the values. Uh, everyone values in their own ways. So I think that, yeah, uh, it, I, would, I would look at this uh, in terms of a, of a potential methodology, you know, to, to associate and yeah, either in circles or in, in a hierarchical, you know, order in which uh, different people may engage with the arts differently and that public support can come in, uh, in, in different ways, not necessarily for everyone or... Uh, for so, only for some, of course. I think right, our subtitle is creating space for or making space for cultural civil society. And I think here the metaphor of, of making space or creating st- space is, is, is important. And um, I think essentially in the public space, there is um, a lot of attempts to have a national museum of this, a national statue of that. And one of the, I guess, victories of recent years has been that we have come to realize that those national places need to be more reflective of heterogeneity in society. Um, right here, not too far from here, there's now a, an African-American a National Museum and an Indigenous American Historical Museum. And those are, that is, I think, sort of the dominant solution. That is what they think creating space is. But in my perspective and the way we lay it out in sort of civil society, this is a weird way of trying to incorporate it because this leads to a kind of, uh, well, we have to treat everybody precisely equally and we have to decide who counts as a group and who doesn't count as a group to be represented on this national uh, podium. If we instead realize that people are already doing this, And that part of our mistake has been to say that we need to have some layer overlaying that, which seeks to define what national or public is, that that is the mistake. And instead, perhaps we should hand over some kind of exhibition space or some kind of performance space to those groups who are already doing stuff and and give them a podium. Because, of course, right, some of these discussions are about money, but part of them are also about status. So I think one of the interesting changes that we've seen in national holidays is that there's now a much wider recognition of having uh, national holidays, not only that represent national identity or one religious group, but that recognize various uh, religious groups. 
But again, here, there's a kind of overlay that here we are going to decide what people, uh, when people have, have to celebrate or which groups get to recognize their, their own uh, special holiday, which I think all of them are, they're, they're better versions, I guess, of top, of doing stuff top down, but they're not really recognizing yet how much of this activity is actually spontaneous and resilient. It's, it's there, right? It's, it's there even. Valeria didn't stress it, but it's, it, it's there even in Venice, where the tourists are sort of trampling the city, where national heritage is, this, this is a, a bit of a, an issue when I walk across all of Italy, that the national heritage is, is nearly everywhere. There's 2,000 years sort of weighing, weighing everything down. And so uh, imagining the new might not be as easy uh, there because it feels like there's, there's already so much there. And there, you mentioned this one word, impermanence. Right. And social processes, they come and go away. And yeah, I, I'm not sure whether I, I'm not going to come out and say all oh, public statues should be turned down, but they represent permanence. They have a vision of art as being forever and for the ages. And I think ultimately that that image might fit the sort of 19th century nation building story, like we've been here for a thousand years and we're going to be here for another thousand years. But I don't think it fits modern society in which uh, impermanence and flux and change are much more important. And I think our notion of, of, of public art and, 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 and also art as a kind of social process, I think is more befitting of that. And that also makes us sort of more adaptable if, if we're trying to both seek it in the past and seek to define it in these sort of everlasting heritage sites or public statues, then we are solidifying in a in a literal sense. We play a little bit with, with this in the book, right? That it's also reflected in the materials, like it's going to be bronze or gold or the stuff that's going to be around for a very, very long time. Whereas artists, in fact, have moved on. They're not at all uh, trying to use mediums anymore that, that are going to be around forever. They might still have a little bit of a dream of being remembered in a hundred years. Who doesn't? That's, I guess, vanity. But the materials they're using, like uh, installations, interventions, right, have far less of this permanence that some of the older uh, notions of art have. And festivals are, of course, ancient. They have been around forever. And they have a very easy time coexisting um, because there's so many niche festivals out there they last a week or a weekend, and they are there. They allow people to uh, realize who, who, who they truly are without having to fix that um, for the next decades or so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as a you know, this idea of policymakers kind of stepping back or, or allowing for what's already happening to to take a you know have a bigger voice or you know, a different stage, I think is, is really important. It gets at an interesting question of policy, right? Can we expect policymakers to be the forefront of this change or, you know, kind of what we're seeing is that people are stepping up and trying to get that power back a little bit as well. Like, I guess, what do you think about, can we expect policymakers and experts to step away from picking sides and actually cultivating this space? Because there's a lot of, you know, as you talked about, there's instrumentalization and power dynamics and things at play with why you would want to pick what's national art, what's national culture and, and what's approved. And so how do you see this, this tension in public policy kind of coming about? Well, the, 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 the first thing we can say is, is of course, we, we first of all speak to, to other economists and sociologists talking about the art, right? Uh, and so that's our first audience. And I think they have it wrong uh, in, a, in a quite substantive uh, way. So initially, Billy and I started actually working on their territory. And so, so should we say something about public subsidies? Should we say something about this kind of initiative? Should we say something about any kind of initiative? We ultimately end up doing saying not so much about those things because we, th- we think they're the wrong framing. Because they treat the creative industries, as they're sometimes called, or the artistic sector, they treat it as an economic domain, a market, which sometimes requires intervention for various reasons. And there's a whole host of reasons that uh, economists of the art have, have come up with, uh, standard market failure, 
features as well as things that are quite specific to the arts, why they need support. But I don't think that's that's the, the, the right way of, of framing it. So by framing it as a civil society activity, I think the right comparison becomes how the state goes about treating other important domains of civil society. And so in the book, we draw an analogy with religion. And religion is also an activity, a social process for uh, many people. It's identity forming. It has an idealistic or semi-public element to it, where you're also trying to imagine a better space, not just far away, but also uh, in the present. And what the state over time has come to realize, I think also what political thinkers and economists have come to realize, is that this is not a domain for state intervention. It is a domain where we have to protect minority rights and we have to secure a degree of tolerance, but it's not a domain. In fact, we often speak of the separation of church and state. And so why why are we not thinking about cultural civil society in those terms, that there should be a separation? Because at the moment we overstep that separation, we're trying to, as, as you also now expressed it, right, we're trying to give a sort of, we're trying to create a national religion or a national art form, something that is uh, more worthy of being the true religion or the true art than something else. And I, I hope that that sort of reframing makes us think differently, not merely in how much money should we spend on it, but rather in what is actually the status of this domain? Is it, is it best understood as, as a market or is it actually better understood as civil society? And we don't say that they should intervene in, in sports clubs. Now, right. The, the, the most difficult element, I guess, of that is that there's, there's a long, it's actually only half an economic argument, which is the idea that it's somehow a merit good. So somehow society is better off when people go to church or somehow society is better off when people do sports or somehow society is better off when people participate in the arts. That I think is, is ultimately the hardest thing to move away from. Also uh, among our colleagues, nearly everyone is an art enthusiast of one kind or another. So everybody sort of shares this sort of intuition. I, I, I do too. I, I would love if everybody uh, sees, sees, sees the beauty of it. Uh, but I think here, the only answer can be, look at how resilient it already is. Look at what people are doing. And part of that, of course, is recognizing that people also do it when we don't always recognize that they're, that they're engaged in it, right? So a better recognition of amateur practices, of uh, folk types of uh, culture makes us better recognize that people are already participating. I think there's very important discussions to be had about what we're doing online. What parts of that should actually be considered part of art and cultural activities? Uh, Valeria and I also discussed about whether time, so there's a kind of time consumption study studies, whether those actually are a better sort of empirical way of getting at some of these things, because ultimately, right, time is the, the ultimate scarce uh, resource. And do we spend time? And there's so much creative activity also online going on that part of that should certainly count as, as new kind of cultural activities. And we're, we're bad at capturing it because we're still so caught in this sort of high art or uh, what what is really art or traditional arts uh, sort of uh, conceptions. Yeah, I think that's really important and I think, you know, in the in the work I've done on disaster studies, right? It's we talk about making space for actual people on the ground to be able to be a part of their own recovery and come up with these solutions. And like with your example, it's not that they don't do it and they need the space to be able to do it. It's the fact that it's already happening everywhere and we're not looking at it. You know, we're not really recognizing enough. And so, you know, yeah, that the first thing we need to do is open our eyes to see this is happening. Now let's give it a proper stage maybe, or, 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 you know, that kind of idea I think, I think is important. And then it's tricky because we have these political contestations where we want you know, I think if we can come apart it from that way, that discussion, that space matters, but then we have to deal with the people who want to t- make the discussion stop, I guess, right, as well. And I keep on thinking of uh, this interview of an independent cultural space in Venice, which I did uh, 
last year for this project. And uh, the person was commenting on uh, public action in, in support of the cultural sector and in support of these type of practices. So not just subsidies to established uh, art forms, but also maybe, you know, start people who are starting their careers. And he said, well, these tools of grants and, you know, uh, acquiring funds for your um, startup projects uh, are a nightmare. He literally said nightmare. And he used a metaphor uh, from biology saying, well, uh, these policymakers, they hope that they give you all these details and, you know, that you should take all the boxes of what you're doing, uh, what, what what is your project about? And uh, they end up they ended up giving money to some startups that were growing uh, rucola uh, on a bell tower. Whereas if you instead use some sort of a radar, just like biologists do, you will see that there is so much ferment and so many people are already doing a lot of things that you do not really need to tell them what to do. So I think this is quite fitting in in this type of uh, discussion of uh, well, what we should well the challenge is really not just in maybe it's not even to imagine a way of dealing with that but it's rather finding a way to see that so it is more of a probably scientific inquiry problem at this point so where should we look at uh, and I think this is the open ended question of our book in the end right Ervin like we this is also a question for ourselves like. I generally uh, am not sure about the answer. How can we do justice, you know, to the social practices around the arts? Because that is the challenge. Where should we look at to see this? We can say say two things. This this working paper of Valeria and I was 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 never even finished, but we made the argument that making space is sometimes means neglect. So we have the example of hip hop. We had the example there of hip hop culture in New York. The Bronx was literally burning. Um, there was nothing. There were no public facilities or public goods of any kind being provided. And that is where this new art form was born out of literally neglect and almost despair. If we look at Berlin, which is another famous instance of a creative city that should be imitated around the world, what happened? Well, communism collapsed. East Berlin was an open space with lots of abandoned buildings, abandoned apartments. If you did pay rent, you paid very little rent. It lacked all sorts of basic amenities and, and basic public services that you, you would typically always point to. Like it's important that the good infrastructure is in place because if the infrastructure is not there, it's not a good place. Well, that was not a good place, but it, it flourished for 10, 15 years until essentially the place became too well managed. And that, that actually harmed creativity uh, and, and the creative potential of that, that city to, to some extent. So the, even the extent to which right, making space is an active process, I think is a very important question in, in, in some of these things. And now I'm not advocating neglect, but it just does show, I, I think the same way as your uh, 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 disaster, natural disaster research shows, right? Nobody's advocating disasters. But we do have to recognize that even in such areas, there is the resilience and there's a, a, a kind of spontaneous emergence of these practices that uh, is equally or it, that is easily sort of the, 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 the space where you least expect it. But that's where some of these most important moments of, of, of creativity happen. This is true, Irvin. Uh, at the same time, I, I think there is an additional challenge here, right? The turbulence, uh, I mean, uh, also uh, other um, geographers, uh, for instance, I think of Peter Hall, uh, considered that to be an important, a crucial uh, factor in, uh, in, uh, uh, in creative cities over the, in history. But at the same time, uh, um, a problem comes again of planning, right? If you, I mean, you cannot, you will not want to plan a natural disaster, but neither you want to plan uh, neglect. So, of course, we're not advocating for neglect, uh, but we should not even advocate for prediction in this sense, right? It's not that we are going to play with variables that, you know, uh, bring uh, towards creativity to flourish and then maybe play with those to create the condition for uh, the process to start. It's, it's even more uh, challenging, right? Yeah, I think that's right. The idea that we could 
you know, kind of figure it out. Like, okay, we could take from those examples that all you need is some abandoned buildings and warehouses and then art will come. Right. Um, which isn't quite true either. Um, but I think that ability to know ahead of time, how these things will happen, right. Is what's so challenging for policy being so heavily involved. Like, you know, the Chelsea hotel in New York was not a beautiful place to stay, but it resulted in a lot of beautiful things that came from it. But it, you know, we might say, oh, we just need a place where everyone lives, where they can do those things. Well, you know, we now have the rise of like Instagram houses where all these influencers come and go. And we don't quite know yet if they'll produce the same types of things that that come out of those areas. And so that, I guess, openness to the variety, I think matters quite a bit. You guys, you talk about, you know, this sort of idea of a heterotopia uh, in the book of the idea of kind of, I think, opening us up to all of these different ways and having to take, take a step back from planning how this goes about, right? Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? I mean, heterotopia, we, we take the notion, I think, from both sort of... Uh, Utopian thinkers on the right and on the left. Uh, so I think the term originated with, with Michel Foucault. We say some similar things can can be found in the uh, sort of uh, right anarchist philosopher um, Robert Nozick, who conceptualizes something of the sort. We we try to illustrate it with an uh, artistic community in um, Copenhagen, Denmark, that has persisted for a very long time. I think Evelia was expressing some kind of skepticism. I think the hardest thing, like cities clearly have been key in the development of these circles, uh, of these circles. And an amazing thing about cities is that they allow for the coexistence of many different niche practices. They both generate this critical value because there's so many people together that essentially if you're drawing from a pool of 5 million people or 10 million people, it's very likely that your niche is going to have some kind of viability too, which in uh, smaller communities is much harder. But cities, as we are also discovering in, in literal urban planning of building, do have an aspect of, of rivalry in a very serious way. And they also have aspects of, of externalities that, that need to be managed. And so one of this, this artistic community self-governed for a long time, but that self-governance often uh, meant that they uh, pursued quite different drug policies than the rest of the city did. Uh, so there was a sort of constant tug of war between the self-governance of this community, um, which sometimes became known for just being a place where you could buy hard drugs cheaply, and that spilled over into the rest of the city, created scandals. And so there's 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 certainly limits to what we can do. But I think going back to this example of the of of uh, of the queer museum, one of the lessons we draw from that is that private sponsors were no longer willing to support it because it generated backlash. Public administrators for the same reason sort of felt like, okay, this is this is going to alienate some of my uh, voter base, so we're not going to do it. Right? And then we saw a kind of uh, bottom-up crowdfunding and a semi-private school that otherwise didn't have a very strong sort of integration and was a little bit always off the radar. They offered to host the exhibition and then together with the crowdfunding, which did it, they generated it. And we say that shows the importance of institutional diversity, right? Don't rely on markets or public spaces alone, but think of the wide, wide variety of institutional diversity. In fact, Italy has always been interesting because they have tried to facilitate having different legal forms for community-based organizations of various kinds. And so sometimes even the legal side of, of that is important. So the heterotopia is not merely about physical spaces, but it's also about legal spaces. But the institutional variety is, is very, very important for making different ways of being together very, very uh, or, or, or possible. And yeah, which one of those is going to work out best would be kind of silly. And um, perhaps it just should just be that it's easy to come together. But economically speaking, we also know that if people are going to be together, there has to be uh, some kind of uh, some kind of sharing. That's also what the Commons uh, research biostream, of course, uh, right? Things ma don't manage themselves literally. Uh, you can have self-governance, but even that self-governance has to take certain institutional forms. And to facilitate some of those might be part of creating this heterotopia. 
festivals might be another, I, I mentioned them before, might be another important part of having a heterotopia because they're sort of only half permanent places of being different and acting out difference. I think you know festivals could be an interesting way of experimenting with that institutional diversity, right? You get to kind of try a different way of living for a, a small amount of time, see if that works. I think embracing these spaces allows for us to, you know, kind of on a democracy side of things, it's a way to test in real life that, you know, maybe doesn't have as many of the permanent consequences of a whole new city that uh, has to be designed a new way or something like that as well. We're closing up on time. We could talk about this for hours, I think. But I hope everyone reads the book and digs into the conversation. I have a few kind of quick questions to kind of um, uh, end uh, this up. So sort of, we've been talking about the project and your collaboration. Uh, How was it collaborating on the project? Did it reinforce some of these ideas of social learning and the practices that you experienced while you worked on this project together? Um, maybe I can start, uh, for, for me, I mean, the way we collaborated was mainly, um, well, with long, uh, online uh, zoom or similar sessions, which, uh, really built, I think what we wanted and eventually wrote regarding reinforcing, uh, a framework. I think I, I mean, I, in my experience, I think I have learned uh, quite a lot in this, uh, in this process. As uh, you might expect from, you know, literally literature from geography or more uh, cultural studies that uh, really study the type of uh, case that I was dealing with in Venice, uh, they have a very different perspective on it. And I think uh, um, I have now a more liberal idea on how we can make these things uh, better work. So in this sense, I think that uh, it didn't reinforce very much my framework, pre-existing framework. It was more about evolving. Yeah, uncertainty again uh, played a very big role. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, for me, it was just an amazing experience uh, to, 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 to work with Valeria. I think you also have, I mean, we're saying all these things about, right, different disciplines coming together also for, for the circles that being together. But this book, um, I'm not, I don't know whether that's going to be its downfall, but it draws from philosophy and sociology and economics and tries to say, you know, these, these people, if you, if you put them next to each other, are not that different from, from each other. And uh, I think our, even though we worked in the same department, uh, has a background much more in urban planning. I, mine is, is in sort of intellectual history and in, economics and um, those things have also come together. And yeah, regarding the actual process, Valeria emphasized the Zoom calls, but we did spend two weeks together here with with these very big writing writing boards. And I still have those because they were, they were a wonderful souvenir of this moment where all our ideas had to come together and they have had to form into sort of argumentative lines. And that, that was a really amazing experience to see that come together because before that we had drafts, but the chapters didn't belong together and what I wrote and she wrote sometimes didn't belong together yet on, on the paper. And uh, yeah, and that, I, I, I at least hope that that has come together um, because of those, uh, those weeks together. Yeah, I think so. And I think it shows that, you know, this importance of collaborating and, and discussing that practice, right? I think it's, it's always really important when this, the research that looks at uh, this vast array includes some of that in itself as well. So for folks who uh, get the book, enjoy it, and want to dig into it more, are there particular things that you think that they should read after this one to kind of get into uh, cultural civil society and, and, and art a little bit more if they haven't already? Well, first of all, let's see uh, if we manage to uh, get out also the following parts of this of this research. We're currently working on co-creation, uh, maybe that neglect article, which has been neglected for a while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we are also uh, uh, collaborating on a value-based uh, edited volume, which uh, gets together um, the Rotterdam School. Uh, of cultural economics in a way and we will we're working on public art in Rotterdam for that one but this is this is forthcoming things 
Um, we, I, I already mentioned uh, Peter Hall's Cities in Civilization, uh, which is a great example uh, of creative cities in history and how the cultural milieu is very much about uncertainty and turbulence um, and also yeah, instability. Um, we have uh, drawn from uh, imagined futures to have this idea of uh, expectations uh, of behaviors for the future by uh, Jens Beckert. I don't know if uh, Irvins uh, has more to suggest to that. Well, I, I, I must say that uh, one of the things I will always remember is uh, at some point I, I, I thought we, we have to say something about dance. Valeria actually has a, something of a background in, in, in ballet and dance, but there, I, I don't think, I, I'm not sure whether she, she saw those books, but there was this one book called To Dance is Human by um, Judith Hanna, which has the idea of the city as being a mosaic of social practices, which I found really, really fascinating. But yeah, as a sort of counter to our book, Richard Florida's book, Rise of the Creative Class and everything that comes after that has really been sort of sweeping this space. And this is now, especially among policymakers, even though Richard Florida sometimes is looked down upon as an, as an individual a little bit, his idea that somehow the arts are there because they're good for innovation or good to attract the, the creative class to your city or good for urban regeneration, this instrumental notion has really, really taken hold. And so I think that's also a good starting point. Perhaps people agree with that perspective more than ours, or perhaps they see good reasons why uh, we should rethink that. But I think that that remains one of the classics in the space. And yeah, the other book, uh, Jason Potts has a book on the innovation commons, which is more actually written about the tech world. But I think a lot of what he says translates very well to art as an innovation space. Excellent. Thank you so much for spending this past hour and a bit with, with me talking about this. Everyone should go buy your book. Uh, it's Realizing the Values of Art, Making Space for Cultural Civil Society, published by Springer. And I think right now it's on sale. So they should definitely go and get that too. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.